I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Four years ago, under the sweltering heat of Nineveh, in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq, the small city of Sinjar came under attack by ISIS forces. The Kurdish Peshmerga fighters, caught off guard, retreated, abandoning the civilians of Sinjar without warning. The outcome was devastating. Thousands massacred, women and children taken into slavery, a population dissolved by evil. Of course, all this appeared in the headlines. It flashed across our television screens. But beneath the surface of the stream of breaking news from this tormented region live a people whose lives have been shattered to pieces by daily tragedy. The horrors are unimaginable, the evil seemingly unstoppable, and the trauma almost insurmountable. Nevertheless, as always, wherever there is human peril, there are stories of human virtue. This story is about Lisa Miara, born and raised in the UK, but currently residing in the Sharia refugee camp. Lisa has spent the past several years trying to save the lives, literally, of thousands of Yazidi refugees from both mortal danger and the agony of their trauma. Through her foundation, Springs of Hope, Lisa works restlessly to provide displaced Yazidi people with hope and purpose. She joins us today to share her stories. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. How are you? <laughs> I'm always split between two worlds. It's a very hard situation to be in when I'm a Jerusalemite. And I'm a Jerusalemite that doesn't even like to sleep overnight in Tel Aviv. Get me back to my <laughs> Jerusalem bed, you right. know? Yet you spend uh, yeah. countless nights a year in, yeah. in the Kurdish regions of northern Iraq. I mean, how, um, how much time are you there? I'm close now to 80% of my time wow. in this tiny little... Yazidi village that has become a tent village plus a host to a camp of 20,000 and the village that runs with sewage and chickens and you go home and there's a sheep sitting on your front doorstep. Oh my God. So a totally different world. It's not, I mean, it's not that different than certain parts of Israel. I mean, or you Jerusalem. can find, yeah, you can find uh, that, you can find you that can in find, Jerusalem. <laughs> that's a real Tel Aviv yeah. speaking. <laughs> but I guess it's, it's much more uh, than that. I mean, this is, this is a permanent camp of, uh, of how many refugees? I think you said a key word. It is a permanent camp. It wasn't designed to be a permanent camp and it's falling to pieces, but it is now a permanent camp for 20,000 Yazidi displaced from Sinjar. So who are the Yazidis? Who are the Yazidis? It's a very good question. They are a people that have lived in northwest Iraq. They would say they are the original Medes. If we go back in our Bible history to the time of Daniel and the, the Medo-Persian Empire, they are the original Medes. Um, they would also say that the Kurds split off from them. So it's a very, very ancient people who have a quite undefinable religion, which is one of the reasons why over the years they've suffered so much in the last century, 74 genocides. They are, they extract elements of Judaism, I mean, very definite elements of Judaism. Um, such as? Such as um, Brit Milah, such circumcision. as cir circumcision. At such an earlier as, age. At an like... earlier age, yes. Okay. Um, 
And for example, when a person dies and it's not just connected to the heat, like us, burial is between sunrise and sunset. And mm. then Shivaya Meem, Shiva, total Shiva, really? sitting absolutely. On the floor? On the floor, cross-legged, but then their life is on the floor, cross-legged, but the Shiva, you know. Then going up to the grave, making a Su'uda on the Erev of the 30th day, going up to the grave again after a year. Um, for the religious ones, not cutting the boy's hair until he's three years old. Really? There's really? so Sounds much wild. stuff. There's so yeah. much stuff there. The more you, the, the, the way, you know, an animal is slaughtered, um, not eating a, an animal that's just been, has died, but a, a written nomapitam. Absolutely not. I mean, they're kosher in that sense. That's crazy. It's like it's lamb, lamb and beef and, and fish that we would eat, and that's it. So, so are they cool with us? Oh, they love us. They're crazy about us. Like the Kurds. More so. The Kurds love Israel and respect Israel. Probably more from a strategic place and and similar histories. The Yazidis have lived with the the, uh, Jews until obviously there was the expulsion by Saddam Hussein in 71, but have lived with the Jewish community for thousands of years. And the Yazidis are... They have a lot of the Islamic culture and sort of the Persian culture. And uh, if you know that, you, they can sing songs for eight hours. But in the songs and in the stories, always turns up the Jew. There's never any anti-Semitic context. And I'll, I'll go further than that, which is kind of jumping in. We work with a rescuer who immediately after Daesh, ISIS went into Sinjar, he began, he was a lawyer, he began simply to look for his family and uh, did many rescues from the Tel Afar stronghold of ISIS in northwest Iraq. And one day he called me and he called me Mama Lisa and I was actually here in Jerusalem. He says, can you bring me something from Yerushalayim? And they call it Yerushalayim, you know, it's crazy. And I said, my son, if I can, I will. But what do you want? He said, I want an Israeli flag. I said, you must be crazy. <laughs> he said, no, I want an Israeli flag. Iraqi costumes uh, wouldn't like that, I think, to find Not it today. in your no, no, no. luggage. But I did take him one. I said, you're crazy. I won't do it. And then he said to me, he said, there's one thing that Daesh is scared of, Israel. And he said, I want to put one on me to wear it on me when i go and do rescue said i promise i'll have a coat on top but that's what he did and that's what he does and i took two flags in and got them in wow they love us how many zidis are there in my province which is the northern province called the hook which borders on syria and turkey there are 24 internally displaced camps which is a very nice word and avoids using the word refugee. And there are 400,000 people there. There's another 100,000 spread over the rest of the Kurdistan region of Iraq. So About half a million. A million. Yeah. Half a million fled that day. So yeah. let's, half a million fled that day? That day when, when, when Daesh invaded, mm-hmm. half a million people were woken up, were fleeing, uh, village by village, it was a process. Not all fled that. This night. was August two thousand fourteen. August two thousand fourteen, and they happened all in basically twenty four hours. The majority happened in twenty four hours, but it was also an ongoing process where there was a lot of confusion. 
where Daesh would go into some villages and say, hey, we've come to set up a system of social justice, social welfare. We'll take you into the medical center. Your baby needs blood, needs a transfusion. We'll give it. I mean, the, and they did that. And then they would come after a week or so of, of being supplied and, and babies, yes, having medical care, would suddenly come the day when they, he would hear shooting and there's 1,600 men in a mass grave outside or another shooting and women just being poured, buried under rubble. So it depends on the village. It depended on the level of resistance. But it started on the 3rd of August. And you can say over a three-week period, Sinjar was eradicated. The refugees were on the run. And within mm -hmm. three weeks, those who had survived and hadn't been taken either to Telafa, Mosul, or Raqqa, were then in inside uh, the borders of, of not even the camps at that time. It took them three months ah, inside the borders of, of, of Kurdistan, having either exited through Turkey and then yeah. come in through Kurdistan or exited through Syria and come in through Kurdistan. But sorry, but how many Yazidis are there in the world uh, uh, in total? Around about between 700 and 800,000. Okay, just the to get the numbers. The additional being there is a Kurdish population in Turkey. There's a small Turkish uh, Yazidi population in mm. Armenia mm -hmm. and in Georgia, Russia. Okay. I see. So this ha all happens about four years ago. Yes. Well, actually, pretty much Pre exactly four years, four years ago years from now. From yeah. now. And uh, about a year later, you show up, and we'll get back. We'll get to the whole prelude to that afterwards. But when you show up at the beginning, people are still doing rescue missions, as I understand. When I show up, it was about eight months after August the third, two thousand and fourteen, and people were in total shock, still not able to comprehend what had happened, what was happening. Because one day they wake up and they're displaced and family yes. members and friends yes. are still left behind yeah. in, in what kind yeah. of condition? With no news of them. With no news. It was, an, it was a very, very simple agricultural, pastoral farming community that many were not educated, particularly the women, that they supplied the wheat and the barley and the corn to all of Iraq, but... They had lived with these neighbors, Muslim neighbors, also for thousands of years. And neighbors turned on them, took out black clothes. Neighbors knew that Daesh were coming and turned against them. And so shock from every kivun, every direction, um, Daesh stripped them, even of the gold in their teeth, any jewelry, any money. So it's a population that has lost everything and anything they could grab when they tried to run was taken from them. And now they have to try and find over 8,000 women and kids, plus all the men, which we're finding in mass graves. And it was the season of initially a few girls managed to escape from Tel Afar without any intervention. And they would come back into Kurdistan and they would call family members. And family members would actually then take them to Khalil in the beginning. And I would sit with him for hours and he would simply pull up Google Earth and create almost out of like, um, what do we call it, plywood, the very, very thin wood, 
models of Telefal which he knew well. He couldn't work in Raqqa, but he had connections in Telefal. He is a... He was actually a Yazidi lawyer, a young Yazidi lawyer, married and with one, one daughter. Wanted to rescue and, he, yeah, and help. He wanted to rescue because these, these, his wife actually at that point was uh, very unusual, very unusual for Yazidi and for a woman. She was a member of the central Iraqi parliament in Baghdad and so she was known. And girls would call her asking for help. And then from imprisonment. From imprisonment. Those that still had cell phones, because they stripped most of the cell phones, those had cell cards. Even when they were running, when you listen to their stories, they were trying to remember one phone number in case they could ever have a chance to call somebody. So rescues in those days were very, they were planned on a very military basis. He would debrief these women, create these models. Debrief, yeah, exactly. And And then then go in and then send a team in, have people in on the inside that he had known from a commercial basis, Um, obviously pay them, set up safe houses, cars. How could he trust that these people weren't... You can't, uh, and that's where money comes into it, that basically you have to buy... You have to outbid the other person who you don't know how much they're paying on the other side. Yes, and then, you know, as things go on and these people were realizing whether it was Mosul or Raqqa, particularly Raqqa, Dirizor, Homs, that there's business in this, of course, prices would go up, but you're reliant on them. And going back to the very first weeks, one could, um, let's say, support a rescue mission, such as Khalil was doing for $500 and get a woman out. Many back, and then finally prices were up on the on the slave markets of Raqqa, even up to sixty dollars, sixty thousand dollars. Once ISIS realized the economic the, potential, yeah, yeah, exactly, of this, of selling these, yeah. yeah, it's worth mentioning maybe that the Azidis are distinguishable, right? Um, I mean, they are known for their, I don't know, or exotic looks, or is it just the stereotypes? I think that's a bit exaggerated, okay. though it's very interesting. There are some very blonde girls amongst them, even Scandinavian looking. It's like the, the a very minority, but it is there. They are a good looking people, I suppose, compared with some others in the Arab world. Right. But I think m- there were girls and there are girls that certainly their selling price was higher than the others because they had blue eyes or blue-green eyes. They were exotic to that yes, area. Yes, to that yeah. area, yeah. I see. And so these rescue missions, I mean, these women who would come back with all the information, would they come back with also stories of their imprisonment? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's one thing that we began as a, we're also a Kurdish amuta, a Kurdish NGO. And we began to document the stories of what was happening and at one point we compiled uh, like an A4 sheet with pictures of um, of weapons. I mean, I still wouldn't know, you know, what are the difference between various types of rifles and pistols and neither would they. But if you show these women a sheet of various weapons and you say, did your captor have this or this? Do you know how many? Where did he store it? Where were they placed in the house? That would then help build a picture of logistics that would go both for debriefing and f- f- for information on the weapons they had, 
Shoyavoyam, but then more practically for the rescues, and rescues did go wrong. I can remember one woman, she called and she said, my captors have gone to the front lines for four days. Now they said to her, we're going off to Syria to fight for four days. You'll be locked in here. That's it. And as soon as the captors left, she called this number that she had memorized and said, my captors have gone for four days and the team moved in. The captors were still there. Two men were executed in the public square. There was another situation where a rescue was planned in a public area. Photographs had been exchanged. Everyone knew where they were supposed to be, but the woman was followed by her captor and she had to walk past the rescuer without even looking at him as if he did not exist and walk around and choose to walk back into captivity. Because otherwise? Because otherwise she would have been slaughtered and he would have been slaughtered. The whole so thing. It's it's yeah. It's it's an appalling. So when you were there, Lisa, I mean, how often you being Jewish, Israeli? How often when and you take these testimonies? I immediately think about the Spielberg archives, right? So I wonder how often does it resonate with you, like on an mm. hourly basis? On a moment by moment basis, and particularly when one begins to really examine village village how isis came in and yes sometimes they pretended to be good and to give medical aid and blah blah but then there came that moment where everyone was in a school or in a wedding hall or in a medical center and the division this one to the right this one to the left take the gold off take the take the fillings out by corps by force young women old women shoot these ones into the mass graves push these ones over pile earth over them it's it's so it 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 continually resonates and takes me back to the shoah and as we're documenting the level you know of course numbers do not and will not ever compare and i hope to god nothing ever compares with this but the levels of evil that we're seeing are just it's 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 incomprehensible and and if we get a little bit political in your opinion this is human evil it has to do with humanity with islam with arab culture with none of the above you know you being there um some people you know the cliche says here in israel many people would say yeah this is the arab muslim culture for you a classic example do you does it give you any perspective being there it's a very very hard question and I don't think that even now I have an answer because I do know very devout Muslims who are working to help the Yazidis from the US who are very peace-loving and say adamantly <coughs> this is not Islam but again if one reads the Quran one sees Muhammad's philosophy towards Jews, towards anyone that he categorized as, as as infidels. And this is still it. It's just being outworked with even larger numbers and more violence. And this is Daesh, ISIS, is the purest implementation of Sharia law, which permits this. And that is Islam. Now, within this, 
we do see occasionally good Muslim men, Talafa, uh, Mosul, various places in Syria, who ha- know the whereabouts of Yazidi kids and help them to get out. We're working with one man right now that actually saw, <coughs> it was an incredible story. I met a man whose name I won't say four years ago in his tent. And his picture, what is the name of that painting? The Scream by... Edward by, Munch. There you go, Munch. Yes, Munch? yes, yeah. yes, yes, okay. yes. And his, his face was a picture of agony. And all I could look at him was think of the scream. He had nothing in his tent and he walked over to this very tatty briefcase and opened it with such respect and took out six pictures of his wife and his five kids. And he said, everyone is in captivity. I have no one, I'm alone. <clears throat> and two months ago, his daughter, Martine, was found by a Muslim we can, man. We can cut that. I think it's okay. <laughs> okay. Was found? But his daughter was found and identified as a Yazidi girl by a Muslim man somewhere in Syria. And he simply decided to do what we would call a mitzvah and get a home. And he did. How? And she remembered the phone, his, her father's phone number. He called the father without identifying himself, saying, is this your name? Is this the name of your daughter? This is a random <coughs> Syrian guy? A random Syrian guy. Who a happened to come across this girl. Exactly. Understood what's going on here. Yes, and decided one and one. returned to without one cent. Without one cent of payment. Which How is, he drove? He drove, he, in the end, he drove the girl through Syria to a certain border where a certain army came into a play and handed the girl over to another army. And then the army did a debriefing and invited the father and handed her over. You were Now, involved <coughs> in this operation? I knew it was going on. I wasn't involved in it. But the father called me and said, what if it isn't my daughter? He said, I haven't actually seen. Right. And then he said to me, you know what? If they're able to free and to rescue a Yazidi girl and she has no one, I will take her as my daughter regardless of who she is. Now, his page, his, his photo of the reunion with his daughter actually went viral on Facebook. It's really? crazy. It went totally viral. And another Arab man saw this girl who was rescued and said, she is the copy of the girl in my house. Twins. It's like sisters, not twins, right. but they just look so alike. You, could, you can see the resemblance. In his house. In Syria. In so this was <coughs> the other daughter of the this man. This is the other daughter. And right now, when I left last week, he was busy, or his wife was busy, sending through Messenger on Facebook pictures of the house, pictures of the road leading to the house. And the father said, help me, help me to get her out of there alive. Isn't it wow. easier now, though, to get people out no, of Syria? It's much harder because when there was Daesh, whether it was right or wrong from a moral perspective, people were able to negotiate with Daesh, were able to pretend to be buying the women from the Shuka Sabaya, from the slave market, and either yes, buy them or steal them from under their noses. But there was trade. 
Um, and yes, it's it's a very hard one for us as an NGO. We weren't able to be involved because it is a supporting of, of a terrorist organization and it is a supporting of uh, sex trafficking. But then there was there was a continual stream because as soon as they were located, there was a purchase, there was a negotiation and there was a purchase or an escape. Daesh have been pushed back. Jabhat al-Nasra are in place. The rescuers who have worked in Syria do not have connections with them. They're um, more extreme? They're Al-Qaeda. So it's the same, the same evil in a different guise. They collaborate but it sounds, with like, <coughs> it sounds like ISIS is more like uh, almost capitalist. The way you're describing them, like they, would, they're yeah. more financially driven than because they intended to establish a state. They had the caliphate. I mean, they have their flag. They had their governance. They had money printed territory. Yeah, territory. Which that that has been. I mean, I'm not an expert by any by any means, but but that has always been one of the differences between Al Qaeda and Daesh is that Daesh established a caliphate on eschatol eschatological principles mm -hmm. so th what is i mean spending all this time in the camp i'm sure you hear stories what what is the day uh today of of one of these prisoners one of these slaves these women and children in, that spend all these <coughs> years you know in most captivity? most of them have very very hard days where they're they can be moved from place to place by a captor. Even now, after four years, a captor can decide. He's in Raqqa today or, or Homs today or Deir Azor, and he's off to Mosul. And there still are pockets in Mosul, regardless of what anybody says. And there still are pockets in Kirkuk, and they can still travel from one to the other. He'll up and he'll take his sabaya with him. And she Sabaya is is, 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 is a slave, captor, yes, for for uh, for Yazidi infidel slave, yes. And this woman will do hard labor throughout the day, and then she is his sexual slave at night, and that is torture. I mean, we have one girl of twenty two, twenty three, who was released three months ago, and she has told her story, and most of them. Do give them, you know, I've always said to people, don't push, don't get a, a girl that's come back and say, hey, so how many times were you raped? So how many captors did you marry? No, don't say a word. We've got to slowly introduce them into life. And when there is trust, if there is trust, if they decide on their terms, they will tell their stories. And this girl told us how... Even the very first day when she was chosen and she was told to go into a bathroom and to bathe and to put the clothes on that the captor chose, she refused to bathe. And she said, you know, there had been like two weeks in, in 50 degrees Celsius. They were all smelling, stinking, sweating. They'd been transferred, you know, from Tel Afar into Raqqa. And she, that was her first act of defiance for which she was punished. And it went on to the to the to the levels there. She was thrown out of a fifth floor of a building multiple times. And she survived. And she survived. Her legs are crooked because both her legs were broken and they set wrongly, and so her legs are not straight. And she walks with a lot of pain. But she she walks. was thrown from the fifth floor and landed on her feet. I'm 
assuming, because otherwise she would have been dead. She'd broken her back, or yes, exactly. So basically, um, Handmaid's Tale is reality. Yeah. But nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it, because the Yazidis are... There is no UNRWA for Yazidis. No. They are there. They have been there inside the camps, giving out rations. But there is no international body, government, source that cares about the Yazidis. Mosul was liberated August last year. We went to visit camps and we did some work in camps of two million displaced from Mosul. And yes, they had a hard time also under Daesh. They didn't have this these levels of crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. These are non-Yazidis. Non-Yazidis, Muslims. Mm-hmm. They are all now, one year later, back inside Mosul. The camps that were built for them are closed and non-existent. Mosul is thriving, has art galleries, museums, restaurants, theaters. It's like a cosmopolitan city that it wasn't beforehand. And four years have passed by. And has one village in Sinjar been restored? So why why can't the Yazidis go back to their villages? There is no infrastructure. There are no houses. They were totally bombed. And behind every door and every step you take, there are mokshim. How do we call them? Right. Mines. Landmines. Landmines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No international forces come in to clear them out. No international forces come in even to cover and identify the mass graves. That's something that they're doing, Kilu, slowly, slowly, slowly. It's inhabit. Is it uninhabitable? So, what's the future of these people? That is the whole tragedy. Four hundred thousand people sitting there in torn tents with nowhere to go and nothing to do. So, no future. And no future, which was why re- we made a decision. You know, if the UN just taking one camp of twenty thousand, UN can't provide solutions. Of course, we cannot. But because we have been involved in rescues. And because we do have an inroad into these families, our whole focus has become on the education of kids who have been released from Daesh. And even within that, child soldiers. Who have been brainwashed. Who have been totally brainwashed. And sometimes there is no way back. I want to say, Bezrat Hashem, there is always a way back. I was awake the whole night last night. I was, was talking to Iraq till about midnight and we were discussing one of our kids who I absolutely love and whose name I cannot give he is so gentle so polite so honoring so respectful amazing and then I he'd released something yesterday in a conversation that we had no idea that he said I am Izidi but I believe in the establishment of the Islamic State inside Kurdistan I could have come home two years ago, but I chose not to. I chose to remain to form a special forces unit that in the due process of time, we would then choose to come back to Kurdistan to set up the Islamic State. It's like this uh, Japanese soldier who's stuck in the jungle, right? And he's sure the war is still going on. No one told him it's, it's over. So he's, <laughs> he's an undercover. He sort of was, his job was to be an undercover agent. It was. Agent. I mean, he's gone through debriefing. It won't happen. It can't happen. But I was, I was still shocked at that level of brainwashing and conviction that is in him.
I've known several, I've got another very cool kid. I mean, this kid just lives now to play football and wear Ronaldo clothes. When you clothes. say kid? Uh, 11 years old. He was a full, fully fighting trained soldier. His job was to make suicide belts. And he was, he, was, he was discovered underneath the rubble of Mosul. His captor's house had been targeted and the captor fled, leaving him there alone. And the captor came back several days later. He has no idea of the, you know, was it two days, four days? Found him underneath the rubble because he was of value to him. He then extricated him, bleeding and, and broken legs and took him to another captor's house, which the day later was then targeted and went down in their strike. And then the Iraqi army found him. Now, this kid was taken to an, um, uh, an Iraqi army hospital close to Mosul and then transferred to the Kurdistan region hospital in Erbil, where the family was called. Inside that hospital in Erbil, he found his sister had also been trapped under the rubble of Mosul. Wow. The sister returned to Mosul. She had been so brainwashed that she believed the entire world was Daesh. So why leave the captor? That's uh, not far from the truth, but that's maybe not. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. But, but just it one shows the level of brainwashing. Right. Before we have to get to her origin story. I just want to understand one thing before right. is... How many uh, you receive these uh, these victims from from what the the Kurdish fighters the Iraqi army from the rescuers because there are the rescuers though can are, be anybody no can be the Iraqi no, there's, there's there's three Yazidi rescuers of which two are working in Syria and one was Telafar in Mosul so he works less today. We're family, we're friends, we live together, we drink tea together, we've, we've developed over these four years a very close relationship. And also because three years, four years ago, we were able to sponsor some organized stealing kidnapping of women, um, which brought us closer to them. And So these are three Yazidi... Uh, rescuers provide, but you just said, mentioned that there was the Iraqi military who saved this kid from uh, an airstrike. So that's just kind of a because there's a lot of gourmet in this picture. Okay. If 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 someone was discovered in Mosul, then the Iraqi army was in the picture, okay. and then the Iraqi army would hand over to the Peshmerga, who would then bring in the family jurisdictions. Jurisdictions. If kids are coming back. Um, from Syria, it now involves, it's a very complex and a complicated operation that can take even six weeks. And things have been aborted, things have been put on hold. There's more than two or three safe houses. It includes the uh, falsification of Syrian passports, Syrian IDs, every Syrian paper that could be required, and the same for Turkish. And so when they finally come back from Syria, Turkey, into the Sinjar region, it's then the PKK, the PKK, that will hand them over to the Peshmerga, and then the debriefing will happen, and then the family, if there's family alive. Wow. So there's a lot of gourmet involved. Yeah. So, Lisa, two questions for you. First one, um, how is it you're still alive? <laughs> After <laughs> It's my favorite question. I ask <laughs> it a I lot. Because I don't do shtuyot. <laughs> But how can you survive these years being Jewish-Israeli? 
in Iraq. How? How? Because I'm in Kurdistan. I wouldn't be so stupid as to set foot in Iraq. There was the Kurdish referendum, Sakhakol Apol, on the 25th of September last year, so yes. two seven, t 2017, to get a vote from the people, shall we proceed to a vote of independence to break away from Iraq? It backfired. Iraqi, Iraq, Baghdad took control of Erbil airport in Kurdistan and shut it down. My option was to either go through Turkey, where I actually got arrested in the end, or to go through Baghdad. There is no way, both as an Israeli and both as a Jew, I would set foot in Baghdad, in Iraq. No way. But so Mosul, yeah. No way. Slicha? Mosul, yes. No. Also, no. Oh, no, no, so no, Mosul's okay, under no, control of no, Iraqi yes, forces. Yes, yes. Yeah. And okay. so you went through Turkey I and you got arrested? I got arrested. <laughs> and they, what, they let you go? How did they that... let me go? But She has was... a nice smile. <laughs> that didn't help. Believe me, it didn't help. Nothing helped. It was. Did you what... go through with your Israeli passport? With your um, UK no, no, passport? No, I used my British. I turned up. Good Jerusalem girl transferring from international terminal into the domestic terminal. So I had to go through passport control. I give them my ticket. Where are you going to? I said, I'm going to Shirnach. Which well, is? Shirnach is the only place you can get into Kurdistan from. Okay. Half an hour's drive from Shirnach is the Ibrahim Khalil major border crossing. And... The Kurds and the Yazidis have used that border crossing for years and there's been no problem, no problem, absolutely. So with confidence, I say, Shirnach, what are you going to do in Shirnach? And I said, well, actually, I'm going into Kurdistan. Via, there's nothing there. It's like they, the only thing that possibly ever happened there was that Noah's Ark came there. That's one of their legends that they have access to Mount Arafat. Right? Yeah. So I said, I'm going to Ibrahim Khalil and into Kurdistan. Go to the police. I said, excuse me, ma'am, but my flight is in 45 minutes and my paper's in order. Why do I need to go to the police? Go to the police. So I went to the police, tapped on the door, it was a sit down. I sat down sweating for 20 minutes and thinking, I'm going to miss my flight. I've got to pick up my Mizvada, take it over to domestic, check in again and then get on. So I thought, okay, this is time to be Israeli. <laughs> and I went and I said, I have a flight. I need to be on it. And the first thing he did, there were six men in the room all puffing away with their wretched cigarettes, took my laptop from me, took my cell phone from me. I said, excuse me, sir, you have no right to do that if I'm not under the rest. And the next thing was handcuffs. You are under arrest. <laughs> shouldn't, have said that. shouldn't have said that. <laughs> He's flipping through his papers and he says, you are number two on our list of wanted people for instigating trouble inside Kurdistan. I said, if you care to look at all of those pictures, all you can see is kids and artwork and kids feeding and kids eating and kids playing and kids smiling. He's, like, exact, he's like, exactly, trouble. Exactly. <laughs> no, but why not number one? Why just number uh, well, two? I was quite <laughs> offended. Well, let's deal with that later. <laughs> you know, if, Azkwa. And then he said to me, tell me again where you're going. I said, Kurdistan, sir. And then it was like the hands hit the table. 
I have to give you a lesson in history. Have you ever heard of a people called the Kurds? And I didn't, I didn't click. I said, yes, sir. I've read many history books on the Kurds. Have you ever heard of a nation called Kurdistan? I said, a semi-autonomous one. Yes, sir. <laughs> you you didn't realize you're talking to a Turk? <laughs> I lost it. I had, I had, fortunately, I had on me a British checkbook, a British ID, the British passport, obviously, but I also had American 501c3 papers. I had bank papers. I had lawyers' papers. And I asked permission to pull something out of my bag. I pulled them all out and I demanded the, the American ambassador and the British ambassador. I said, I'm going to create an international incident of this. Finally, they let me go. Well, I knew the gate was closed. I said, I insist that you take me to the airplane. But they took me like this, up the steps, handcuffed, sat me in my seat, handcuffed, <laughs> and then unlocked them and left. Wow. And then I had to go back through Shenach. I, I wonder what the reaction of the person sitting next to you was. I mean, I, I wanted to you say... You sat down, you got, were you handcuffed. Know, you're so humiliated on one, one hand and then so angry yeah. on the other. It's a right. two-hour flight. I, I just could not calm down and didn't calm down until my guys had met me and we began to drive. And then I had to come back through Shenach. I had a 10-hour investigation and had a black stamp on my passport. So uh, just, uh, we, uh, it's an amazing story, but I just have to clarify, mm -hmm. why did you end up in Iraq in the first place? How did this initiative born in the first place? I had no plans to do that, no, none whatsoever. I'd been working with terror survivors. My oldest son was in injured in a attempted lynching in the Ayos Junction just outside uh, Ramallah Betel in 1998. We th and that threw me into the world of terror. We then went through several piguim, and he went through another one after which, that was in 2002 in Cafe Moment in Jerusalem. The next day, uh, 3rd of March, 4th of March, 2002, I literally grabbed friends. And I said, I know we're out of our depth, but we're Jerusalemites. We cannot just bury kids and walk away. And that's how Springs of Hope Foundation was born, with, quite frankly, zero knowledge of what we were doing. And these years have actually taken me to amazing places. As I told you earlier, they took me to be a founding member of an international board of global victims of terror, which gave me a different perspective and a broader perspective. It took me to be part of an EU community on de-radicalization pro processes for secular Muslims being found in first or second acts of violence. So it's been a slow journey, and it took me to connect to a, an American lawyer based in Chicago, a law firm based in Chicago, who were doing a lot of research in those days primarily on the funding of Hamas terror here in Israel, 2000 to 2004. And from there, I mean, they took breakthrough cases and one of them was the funding of Saddam Hussein at the time of UN embargoes. So one day he just calls me up out of the blue and says I'm going into Halabja taking a team of legals, paralegals, you need to be there. And something just inside, you need to go. Although I'm giving every argument, I'm not a legal, I'm not a paralegal, I haven't done any research for you on this. You know, why should I go? But I went. 
I don't know where Halabja is. Halabja is, <laughs> is Kurdistan. Ah, okay. It's 10 kilometers from the Iranian border. Okay. And it's where Saddam Hussein, as part of his Anfal, which was a, a massacring of the Kurds over a period of years through the, through the birth party, where he, um, one day he bombed the city so that windows and doors would be broken, and the next day he gassed this tiny little city that actually once had an amazing Jewish presence. They took me to the mikveh, they took me to the old synagogue, all the houses, you can still see the sign of the mezuzah there. So you said yes to this suggestion. So I said yes, and I found myself in the Halabja Chemical Society Memorial Victims Museum. The Kurds love long titles, the longer the better. With five Muslim Kurds who were pointing out Hundred of my family were gassed in this courtyard. Here's my mother; she's dying, trying to escape. Here's ten of my family. Why am I alive? Why am I, Why did I survive? And I was absolutely wrecked, totally wrecked. And at that point, I have to say, as a Jew, suddenly gas didn't just belong to us. And I had to admit, it's belonging to a Kurdish Muslim population that one day smelt apple blossom early springtime, looked up, and they were dead. We spent four or five days getting testimonies of young women who had had five miscarriages, seven miscarriages, men who were sterile, men who were dying of lung cancer. I mean, it was, it was, it was heavy. Then we had one free day, and for some reason, I insisted that we did this six, seven-hour drive from the south of Kurdistan, up to the north of Kurdistan, to the Syrian border, where I am now, Sharia camp. And um, our driver was a former colonel in the Peshmerga, so as we were driving, he was getting all the authorizations for us to enter the camp. You don't just walk in and say, here I am. We spent about three hours in the camp, going from tent to tent, hearing stories, and we were just shocked into silence. And... When we left the camp, we drove straight back to Erbil, to the airport, flew back to Tel Aviv in shock. Then I began to do research to connect with a few of the people that I'd met, of which Khalil, the rescue, was one. And Which year is this by now? So this is 2000, early 2015. Okay. It's like eight months after the beginning of, of the Yazidi um, genocide. And I can remember so simple sitting in a Jerusalem cafe, cafe Betzalel on Rehov Betzalel, 9 a.m. one morning, eating croissant, drinking an espresso, and telling a friend about these three hours in Sharia camp. And there was a guy next to me, and you know, us Israelis, we're like, let's hear what's going on, pushy. And he basically ends up almost sitting on my lap. And then he says, can I have a business card? I'm thinking, well, you've heard everything, man, so I'll give you a card. And that was Yom Shishi. And he called me, Motsash, or texted me, Motsash. And he said, how much will it cost to rescue a woman from Daesh? And at that point, I said to him, it's going to cost $3,000. He said, my mother-in-law, we had dinner Friday night with my mother-in-law that's a survivor from Auschwitz, and she wants to put up the money. And he said, meet me Yom Rishon, 9 a.m., same place. And he gave me 3,000 in cash. And he said, please don't tell anybody about this. But within the period of about a week, 10 days, 
this old lady had spoken to friends and I had $20,000 in cash. So talk about being naive. I walk over to Western Union on Agrippa Street and say, I would like to send $20,000 to Iraq. And the woman didn't know whether to faint or to arrest me. And she took me aside very politely. She said, has no one told you that Iraq is an enemy country of Israel? You can't do it. And there's a limit of $500 internationally anyway. So it was like a think again moment. And I think, okay, what do I do? You know, what do I do? Is it safe for me? Khalil and his wife, it's a come, come. We'll take you out on operations. We'll take you to where the women cross the border. And you can see that I'm thinking, can you do this? Is this safe? And a friend, as I'm pondering this, and I, I've, I've, What's up, Khalil? I said, I've got $20,000. I just don't know how to get it to you, but you can count on it. I'm pondering all this. And uh, an acquaintance, I can't even call him a friend, an acquaintance from London calls me. And he says, I've just completed a documentary. It's going into post-production. I'd like to send you the, this version, and I'd like you to give me a critique on it while we're working on it. I said, okay, send. And he sent. I didn't ask any questions, and I've got this massive file sitting in front of me. I think I'm really not in the mood for post-production of a film I'm not involved in, don't want to be involved in, and I have no qualifications <laughs> to be involved in. And a couple of nights later, I couldn't sleep. So I think, okay, yeah, I'll bring the laptop into bed and look at the film. And I open it up, and it's the escape from ISIS and the protagonist is Khalil. I watched it three times, Ratsuf. I was wrecked because I saw some of the women that in those three hours I had met. Some of the kids in those three hours that I had met. And you had no idea he's, he's doing I this film. I had no idea. And I like That's text amazing. Ed in the <laughs> middle of the night, call me first thing in the morning, brother. And wow. uh, we connect. I said, why did you send me? that film he said I don't know I just knew I had to send it. I said what's between you and Kurdistan he said I've just spent six months there with Khalil wow. filming two days later I was back in Kurdistan and that's when it all began to snowball and gain momentum and what do you do with these women they come out barefoot some you know you know literally these women even when they come out now they're wearing the same Islamic garb that they have worn for three years, for four years, that they have been raped in, they've been tortured in. They've had feces sm smeared all over them. They've been peed all over these garments. So it was like, even then, the first thing you do is take these clothes off, you give them a bath, you give them a shower, you begin to feed them and you give them new clothes. And so it was from really that second time of taking money in and coming close, and spending two weeks in the tents, beginning to see some needs and beginning to see, to realize also the complexities and corruption that accompany humanitarian crises, including genocide, to say, okay, we need to be a Kurdish NGO. There needs to be accountability. We can't get money from Israel in. 
I can legally only cross the border with 10,000. Any more than that, I could be in trouble. We need to set up a, a 501c3 in the US. So there was, there was a continual going in and out, but there was also a backing off to get things set up legally correctly in those two countries. And then um, it has just snowballed. And then it rolled. It's just snowballed, yeah. Wow. I have it's incredible. one more mm. question. Okay. I mean, it's a little bit blunt, but you, in this point in your life, I mean, you could have go traveling around the world. Maybe your kids are like, Mom, come on, like, you, do, you don't help us with the, the grandchildren <laughs> or something. <laughs> or, and uh, you could have drinking cappuccinos. And so why the hell would you need this? And why you? Why not let someone else do it? Well, why you? Some, I, I don't have an answer. And that sounds also stupid. How you can be doing something and so committed for four years and don't have an answer. But I don't. What compelled me when we were burying some 16 kids in uh, Givachol in Jerusalem after the Piguaba moment, and as we put that last child in the ground, I said, we have to do something. What can we do? I said, I don't know. Who am I? It is with a sense of, of, of oh, who am I to do this? And I approach this, the same, but I approach it with... It's impossible, or for me, it's impossible. You know, I, let me back up. I've asked myself, why wasn't I drawn to Bosnia? Why not Sudan? Why? Why? There's been other genocides that are, that are equally horrific. Why would I put a donation online? And I don't have an answer. But there was a compulsion that I knew would hound me for the end of my life. My conscience led me with this. We're Jews. We're Israel. We cannot walk away. We are our brother's keeper. And I just could not walk away. But having said that, I'm developing everything that we're developing there in such a way is that it's indigenous. It belongs to them. Mm -hmm. So it you can pull out them. at a certain point. So if, I, I don't even want to think of it. It's like, that's my home. I've got a dog there, for goodness sake. Okay. It's like, you know, well, I call them. Just the mortgage is left and then you're... <laughs> How's Oscar doing, number right. one? But I believe, you know, everyone in, who, who dares to call themselves humanity has responsibility one for the other. And we can't ignore it. But somehow, we Jews even more so. We, and we Jews. We Jews. Jews. Yes. We have even more so. Don't ask me to figure it out why. And I come back to the, the very famous story of the starfish, an old man and a young man walking along the beach, thousands of starfish swept up by the tide. And one of the two is just systematically picking them up and throwing them back into the water. And the guy says, you're crazy. He says, maybe, but to this one, it makes a difference. Well, that is part of the journey, is picking them up and throwing them back into the water, but then you've got to learn to teach them how to stay in the water. I think that's a good place to, yes. uh, to so, end. Uh, people who want to help, how can they reach out? How can they help? 
Um, our website is www.springsofhope.foundation. You can find us on Facebook, Springs of Hope Foundation. And Gmail is very um, simple again, springsofhopefoundation at gmail.com. Doesn't seem like there's a better thing to do with your money, basically, than this. So if you have some in your pocket, just go to Springs, springsofhope.foundation. And Thank you. donate. That, thank you so much, Lisa. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank guys. You. It's been overwhelming. Before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. It's a news, Jewish news outlet in Los Angeles. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. They also, also have podcasts now, so check it out and enjoy And we'll skip their the content. donate bit today because if you have any money that you're looking to donate, right. donate it to Springs of Hope, guys. Most definitely. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much. Thank you and good luck. And keep safe. Yes. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye.